Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. Uh, Happy New Year to everyone. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to our show this morning. Uh, Listen, we are had a lot of excitement yesterday. Uh, It's unfortunate, but uh, the coup, the insurrection, all of that was happening around the Capitol in Washington, D.C., and we're here to talk about cooperatives. And in cooperative, there's ownership that's democratically controlled. there's this sort of voting, and everybody has a chance to say what's on their mind. And so we end up don't having insurrections and stuff in co-ops because people, they really share in, and a transfer of power happens. Uh, but this morning, we're going to talk about housing cooperatives. And the Limited Equity Task Force in Washington, D.C., was put forth by Council Member Anita Bonds, and somewhere in that task force, which I happen to be, have been a member of, uh, she came up excitedly and said that co-ops, housing co-ops are the answer to gentrification. Because you know what happens in gentrification, particularly in black neighborhoods, whether that's Harlem or Shaw in D.C., now it's Ward 8 in D.C., because in Shaw, as gentrification happens, the prices of housing goes up. And when the pricing of housing goes up, the property taxes goes up. It seems like maintenance goes up, insurances go up, and people on fixed incomes or low incomes, whether they are essential workers or not, they cannot afford those housing. Uh, and so they have to move out. And in D.C., it was what we call Ward 9. That was Prince George's County, or they would go back south. In New York, and uh, moving out of Harlem, they would go over to Jersey, or they would go out into Long Island. But they had to move somewhere where the price of housing would be lower. Limited equity co-ops, they are the ones that help the price of housing to stay down and affordable. Uh, and it could be for workers, the central workers that need to be there, whether they're nurses or they stock the shelves of the food. Everybody that we say are essential that don't get paid as if they're essential, um, they now can afford housing with limited equity co-ops. And then they have a say. They have a vote. They have a say in what goes on in that co-op. They share ownership. And these coups don't happen in the co-op world. And to talk about that this morning, we have Mr. Hugh Jeffers. Good morning, Hugh. Good morning, Vernon. Thanks for having me on the show. It's, uh, I'm real excited about it. And uh, I'm looking forward to talking about housing co-ops with you. Well, I love talking about co-ops and particularly housing co-ops because housing co-ops is how I got into this co-op world. I got into it, Hugh, by managing housing co-ops. Uh, and finding out the beauty and excitement of uh, this co-op and how they blossom and bloom people. How did you get involved in co-ops? Well, it, it's sort of a multi-level story, to be honest. My mother's family is from Minnesota, and 
Minnesota happens to be a state where housing cooperatives, especially for seniors, is uh, uh, are very popular. And when I uh, had just graduated from high school and right before I went to college, uh, my, my grandmother moved into a senior housing co-op in Minnesota for the last several years of her life. And it was sort of my first exposure to cooperatives when she did that. And uh, right now I have a brother uh, who's much older than me living in Minnesota that also lives in a senior housing co-op. And then from a professional standpoint, I started my career. I grew up always wanting to be an architect. And when I went to college, uh, I, I didn't study architecture. I actually studied art and economics. I had a double major. I went to Lafayette College in uh, eastern Pennsylvania. And when I got out of college, I thought about uh, going to architecture school, uh, but uh, I went a different path and I ended up having an interest in doing uh, real estate development and uh, things along those lines. And I started working for a company uh, called Kenneth Leventhal and Company in uh, Washington, D.C. that was a highly respected real estate consulting firm at that time. And the first few years of my uh, work career, I spent actually doing uh, workouts for wealthy developers. And I found that very unfulfilling. Um, and I started looking around to, uh, to use my skills in a different way. And I approached that from looking at companies that were uh, focused on affordable housing. And I actually found uh, the National Cooperative Bank. And uh, at the time, it was MCB Development Corporation, and I was hired on there, and I uh, started as a loan officer there. And what is now Capital Impact, MCB Development Corporation, I ended up uh, managing their affordable housing team for a little while, and I gained an interest in the FHA insured mortgage process there, and uh, cooperatives certainly. And uh, from then on, I've always uh, focused on uh, working with cooperative housing. Isn't it exciting how you think you want to do something architecture and you end up doing something else and then you stumble on and then you stumble on and then that creates your career. And so your career has now been in more as a loan officer. Is that right? That's what you've been doing the last? That's correct. Uh, for 25 plus years, I've been a loan officer and my, or a lender. And, um, I've also, in addition to working with cooperatives professionally, have uh, spent uh, the past nine years on uh, the board of the National Association of Housing Cooperatives. Uh, I chair the Preservation and Development Committee there. So I, I wear sort of two hats in the cooperative world. I, I, I work with NAHC to promote uh, new development of cooperatives as a solution to the ongoing housing crisis in this country. And I also, from a professional standpoint, uh, provide development funding for those uh, projects. Well, Hugh, I don't know if you know this or not, and I did not know you've been there for nine years already, but I was on that committee in NAHC, Preservation Development Committee, for maybe 15 years before you came on. <laughs> okay. And it was out of that committee that this radio show happened, was born out of that committee. And it is very interesting. Herb Fisher, who's now in his 90s, it seemed like he was old as dirt when I first met him now about 25 years ago. And Roger Wilcox, who passed, unfortunately, two years ago at 97, they were older and they took me under their arms, wings, if you will, and taught me this co-op world. 
over those 15 years. And they had it, Hugh, that if if you could get developers to build co-ops, then people would buy them. And when we would go to our annual meetings, we would have uh, we would ask developers to come in and talk, and that was our whole focus. And after listening to that for five or six years, I came back to them with I was teaching marketing at Howard at the time, and I came back with them with my marketing hat on, and I said, "Fellas, no, I wasn't teaching then. I was running it. So at any rate, I, I had taught marketing. So." I said, fellas, from a marketing standpoint, people don't know about housing co-ops until they don't demand housing co-ops. If you can get people to understand housing co-ops, then if they demand them, then developers will build them, and people then will buy them. And that's what's missing. And I didn't even—I thought they were going to boohoo me down. They embraced that idea, and mm-hmm. so we created the public relations committee in NAHC out of that. We went to NCB and talked about that. And then I was on my cousin's show, who's Pat Thornton, who's the developer. I was on her radio show one Wednesday in June, seven years ago. And the person that runs the the uh, radio station came out and said, you should have your own show. Because I was there, June was housing month. And I was there talking about cooperative housing and the development of them and how they work. The same thing we're going to be asking you to talk about here. And she just said, you should have your own show. So I went back to NCB and said, here's an idea. Would you support us? And he, they've been our supporter uh, for these whole seven years, not only financially, but really helping us to understand who are the other people in this housing. There are four sectors of how, uh, cooperatives. Who are those other people and getting them on and all of that. They've been a great, great, great sort of friend and partner in this, this radio show. So, yeah, I, we 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 had something in common, the National Association of Housing Co-ops and the Preservation and Development Committee within that. Right. Well, just to sort of round that out a little bit, I, I know that uh, Herb and Roger both uh, took you under their wing. And I, I had the pleasure of, uh, right before he passed, spending some time with Roger and, and learning his, from him, who uh, certainly is probably the most experienced uh, housing cooperative individual I ever met um, uh, through his uh, foundation for cooperative housing uh, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, he built 35,000 units of housing cooperatives, primarily using FHA mortgage insured uh, products. So I had the pleasure of, of, uh, of working with Roger for the, uh, the last few years of his life. The other thing I should just uh, bring it full circle, uh, Herb Fisher is still on the Development and Preservation Committee and uh, still uh, pushing us hard to, uh, you know, make the decisions uh, that we need to to promote uh, new cooperative development. So I, I guess the, the, the uh, moral of the story is uh, once uh, you are part of this cooperative movement, it's, uh, it stays with you for life. So for life and those two guys um they really 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 love co-ops and roger would start almost every conversation when he started with the history he started with 1954 and bring you up to that date <laughs> so, <laughs> oh yeah he, he, he taught a lot of, of co-ops so so now what are exactly are you doing now well i uh work with a, a company called centennial mortgage uh we are a small boutique firm where you do uh, FHA insured mortgages. And uh, I also originate some Fannie mortgages as well. 
but the company is a very small, nimble, very experienced uh, FHA mortgage lender. And they're also one of the very few lenders that has a focus, a portion of their business focused on housing cooperatives. So uh, that's the, the group I work with. They're a great group of people. Uh, I'm, I'm excited every day to get, get to work. Uh, when I uh, come in, they brought me in to uh, start a cooperative lending platform. So I'm, I'm very uh, happy uh, being with them. All right, we're going to take our first break, and then we'll come back and we'll talk more with Hugh. We'll give us some examples of the projects he's working on. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. Everybody, this is Vernon Oaks. The radio show is Everything Cooperative. We talk about co-ops. Right now, today, we're talking to Mr. Hugh Jeffers, and we're talking mainly about housing co-ops. There are four different uh, types of co-ops, and it depends on who owns and controls the business. If the employees own and control the business, then it's called a worker cooperative, uh, and therefore any business you can think of could be owned by the workers and therefore be a worker cooperative. Uh, if it's owned and controlled by the people that uses the products or services, then it's called a consumer cooperative. The consumer owns and controls the business, and that's where housing co-ops fall, credit unions, some food co-ops. There's a health clinic in Madison, Wisconsin, that's owned and controlled by the patients. Food co-ops could be owned by the workers or by the consumer, the people that shop there. And then if a group of people or companies come together to by the uh, products and services that they use. It's called a purchasing co-op. Farmers are the main ones that use that. Artists are beginning to use it. Hugh, they're the purchasing co-op in D.C. that's called a Consumer Purchasing Alliance that churches, charter schools, nonprofits, they come together and buy the products that they need. Uh, get a better price. Normally, the company... Uh, learns the vendors, know the vendors, create a contract and everything. So that works out good for them. And then the fourth one is a group of people or businesses come together and buy the products or services that they need. Or No, they market their products and services. And these are called marketing co-ops. And sometimes they're called producer co-ops. And companies like Cabot Creamery or Lando Lakes, Ocean Spray. And then there's an artist co-op in Pittsburgh called Ujama which it means cooperative enterprise uh, in Kwanzaa. So these are marketing co-ops. So those are the four types, and we're talking about housing co-ops, which is a consumer co-op. That's the main thing we're talking about today. So, Hugh, we said well, before we took the break, we'd come back. I'm going to ask you, because you're working for Centennial Mortgage, you got interested in this because your grandmother was in a senior housing co-op when you were in high school or coming out of high school. And that was several years ago, so that got you excited about co-ops. So I said to you, I'd want to come back and ask you about what are some of the projects you're working on right now? Well, it's hard to jump right into that without giving a little background. I think there is significant interest in the uh, cooperative model right now, and it, it comes from various uh, different areas uh, of concern. 
And and one of the big areas is that uh, the nonprofit development community has gained an interest in uh, the cooperative housing model as a way to provide affordable housing in, in, in the long term. And also, the nonprofit world finds the model very consistent with its own values. They have a democratically controlled housing. It helps uplift the community. It helps individuals who may not have access to home ownership uh, have home ownership and uh, gain wealth through the process. So, a lot of the projects that I'm working on currently are with uh, the nonprofit community that find their values consistent with the, the cooperative model. Um, and one of the projects, uh, one of the groups I'm working with is in Seattle. Uh, it's a group that uh, the name of the group is Forterra. Forterra is actually started out as an environmental nonprofit. Their objective was to consolidate land to maintain you know, environmental balance on the land. And as they have done that over the years, they have expanded into the idea of consolidating land in cities such as Seattle uh, or Tacoma and, and using that land to benefit the local community. One of the projects that they're working on is a new cooperative construction project which is called the, the Wadajir Cooperative. That cooperative is going to be, uh, it, it, Forterra is working with uh, a local mosque, actually, to promote this project. And it's going to be targeted primarily to the Somali immigrant community in Seattle. It's uh, The project's being built near the airport in a, a community called Tukwila. Uh It'll be 100 units. And it will be a mixed income project, so a portion of the units being affordable to individuals uh, making less than uh, 80% of their median area income. The project will also have a commercial space uh, on the first floor, and that commercial space will be a separate cooperative uh, owned by the uh, people who will be selling uh, products in that commercial space. And that is going to be modeled after traditional uh, Sook, which is a marketplace in Somalia. And uh, the, the, this project has been really, it's, it's in its early stages of development. It's going through the HUD 213 program for its financing, which I'm helping them with. And it's been really well received by the community. They, uh, like I said, have 100 units. And even before construction starts, they have over uh, 200 uh, families that uh, are signed up to be in <laughs> members of this cooperative once it's finished. It, it's really a tremendous uh, project, and I think it will go a long way to supporting the local community and, and, and really uh, act as a focal point in the community, in the larger community as well. Okay, so I want to go back over this a little bit for you so I can get understanding and people out there can also. The name is Watergia, W-A-T-E-R-G-I-A? It's W-A-D-A-J-I-R. And it, it, I, I think the meaning of Watergia is uh, coming together. Uh, it's a Somalian wor uh, word. And um, that is the, uh, the focus of this project, uh, bringing the community together and providing uh, housing for a community that sorely needs it. 
sounds like housing and a market, uh, the marketplace like Suck, I think is what you called it. Um, uh, yeah, it's um, a Somalian <laughs> Suk. That's, okay. Yep. Okay. A hundred units. So 80% of the median area income in D.C., the median area income is almost 100,000. So 80% would be people of 80,000 or more. In D.C., the people that need it are probably making 50,000 or less. So that's 50% of the median. The people at 80% need it too because housing prices in D.C. have gone up so high. But in Seattle, Washington, how does this work and what's the median income and what yeah. kind of yeah, yeah, and I, I can't quote the specific number, but uh, Seattle okay. is a very high price market. Median incomes are very high. I, I, I'd say it's probably similar to D.C. I mean, it's uh, Seattle is a, a tech-oriented uh, market. It's Microsoft nearby. So, housing. And Amazon is, is there. Thing. Amazon is there too, aren't they? That's correct. Okay, Amazon, That's Microsoft. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would say it's probably very similar to D.C., but the housing is out of reach for most folks. And uh, 80 percent of median area income, I would say, is probably close to, you know, seventy, eighty thousand dollars, uh, similar to what it is in D.C. OK. I just looked it up. It's 80,000 in Seattle. Bellevue is 98,000. Kirkland is 100,000. So we're in that same yeah. price. Eighty percent of 80 is 64,000. Yeah. Yeah. So sixty-four and, to eighty thousand dollars is what they're looking at. Right. Okay. And and the way of Fortera is approaching this is uh, they, they are a, a real uh, sophisticated nonprofit. They uh, have a lot of uh, resources. They will be bringing some soft money into this project, uh, both through state and local programs and uh, also through a, a significant fundraising effort uh, to bring it, to make it more affordable. So um, they will be uh, bringing a tremendous amount of resources to, to help also with uh, individual members and supplementing their, their share price uh, purchase as well. So there's a lot of effort going into making this affordable, given uh, the, the market as a whole being so expensive. So what is soft money? Soft money? Oh, uh, that <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm thinking as a lender. Soft money is, uh, is uh, grant money, uh, money that it does not have uh, specific repayment terms. And, and there's usually an affordability requirement that uh, is required uh, for that money to be put into a project. And it's it's usually local governments, state governments, sometimes uh, federal money that uh, supports making a project affordable. Okay, so listen, we got to take our second break. And uh, when we come back, I would like for you to talk about the funding of Wajir. Okay, so we'll talk about the different places of how you get money and see if we can talk about another one. We'll be right back, everybody. Please don't touch that down. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Our guest is Hugh Jeffers. He was talking about a project in Seattle, Washington. Hugh, I don't know if you worked with the Northwest Corporate Development Center in Seattle, 
but there's a guy named John McNamara who was on the show, Dr. John McNamara, who's totally in co-op. He's got his, his uh, master's degree and doctorate in cooperative in, in a school in Nova Scotia. But it's interesting. I thought about him when you said uh, values the, the, the um, nonprofits, this co-op model fits their values and mission, and that he, in part of his dissertation, worked on an index to go out and measure these co-ops and how well they are doing with the cooperative values and principles and how well they are doing, how successful they are in, with their mission. And it would be interesting if that same index could be applied to this nonprofit and how well they're using cooperative model to maximize their mission and be more successful with their mission and their value systems. But what I wanted to ask you about, uh, we'll try to see if we can talk a little bit more about that, but I'm more interested now. And I understand there's five to seven layers of funding to get one of these affordable housing things up where HUD may be the, the bigger chunk of it. You've talked about soft monies, but HUD could play a, a role of guarantee funding to some bank or some other group, or they could really put out the hard money, the actual dollars. Uh, so what's this funding for this this group that you're talking about, this 100 units in Seattle that's mainly for Somalian immigrants that, that's called uh, coming together? Yeah. How do you put that uh, funding together? Well, it's, it, it's a process. It's uh, sort of like baking a cake. I mean, there's many layers to it. Uh, typically, uh, for you know what, what what you would experience with a market rate co-op is that your funding would come from primarily two sources. Uh, one is the blanket debt; that's the 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 construction mortgage and permanent mortgage on the property, and then the rest of the funding eventually comes from the uh, membership shares that are sold to the members. So your total development cost. For a typical market rate co-op, would uh, equal the blanket debt plus the membership sales. Um, with with an affordable uh, co-op, um, you you may not be able to maximize uh, your blanket debt or your share uh, share membership sales because you're trying to create a project that's affordable. So your your rents or slash your carrying charges will be lower than what they would be for the market. So the amount of debt that you would qualify for would be lower. Uh, and your membership sales would be lower because you're trying to make it more affordable. So that typical model that you see in a market rate where your blanket debt and your membership sales uh, equals your total development cost takes on a different look. So you, you have a gap between total development cost and your total blanket debt and your membership sales. And that gap is filled by what we call uh, soft money. Um, and that soft money, as I stated before, comes from several different sources. Um, and it's, it's, it's really based on uh, state funding availability uh, and local funding availability right now. Um, there are, are not a lot of uh, federal grants available for uh, cooperative housing. That may change uh, uh, in the near future. I don't know if I mentioned this to you before, Vernon, but I, I did have the opportunity to work recently with the House Finance Financial Services Committee to help them craft some potential legislation to promote the new development of limited equity housing co-ops through the Department of Housing and Urban Development. And that legislation should be coming 
to fruition or well, not fruition, but at least up in the house uh, at some point in the near future. So there might be some uh, uh, resources on the federal level at some point in the next year or so. But most of that gap is funded through uh, local and state resources. The, the specific group that I'm working with for Terra happens to be a master at fundraising. So there is a, a portion of that gap that's being funded uh, through a fundraising effort as well, um, which uh, and, and usually that that as I called it before, soft money has uh, a, n- a no or minimal repayment terms and have uh, affordability covenants tied to them. So uh, it, they help maintain the affordability of the project on into the future. So in the district, they have something called um, it's HAP. Um, it's funding that the individual can get or the project can get that the city puts up or the state, and if uh, when DC becomes a state, um, puts up to to get this housing and, and money that the state would put up. Um, so I understand what you're talking about this gap money. So here, so I I have okay. So you have a blanket debt that the mm-hmm. cooperative. So you have this Fortura Cooperative, which is an entity. They take on this blanket blanket debt. And the, one of the reasons that co-ops are so beneficial is because a lot of times the members do not have the credit score that they could go out and get a loan. So if Fortura as an entity has the back enough soft money that somebody would loan them this larger piece of the development costs, the blanket debt, then the entity takes on, I don't know, 70, 80% of the cost of development. Is that kind of like what happens? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, it's a very flexible model. Yeah, and it depends. The primary source of of blanket debt, uh, there's really, for cooperatives outside of New York City, uh, the primary sources are uh, either uh, government-sponsored entities including FHA, insured mortgages, and uh, that's what I do. Um, that's the 213 program. Fannie Mae also provides blanket debt, but they don't do development funding. Freddie Mac does provide blanket debt in certain uh, markets, but not all markets. Um, and the NCB also provides development funding and blanket debt. That's National Cooperative National Bank Cooperative provides. Bank. Yes, yes. Um, Your old boss. They, the, my, yes, exactly. I, my, my old boss, I, I love those guys. You know, I, I will never uh, not appreciate the time I spent there because it, it really has mo- it molded my whole life, to be honest. Um, but but those are the primary sources of blanket debt. And the best terms as far as uh, blanket debt that you can get is through the FHA 213 program. That's a mortgage insurance program uh, run by the, uh, the Federal Housing Administration. Um, they run mortgage insurance programs for multifamily projects and assisted living and, and, and hospitals. And cooperatives fall under the multifamily section. Although you know, it's uh, the 213 program is exclusively for cooperatives. And under that program, uh, depending on uh, the economic parameters of a deal, you can uh, uh, get up to 98% loan-to-cost financing. Um, so. Uh, and, and the financing terms are amazing, really. I mean, it's uh, 40-year financing. Currently, interest rates are in the low threes, um, and that interest rate will be fixed for the construction period 
plus 40 years. Uh, so the cost to borrow for a cooperative right now is pretty low. And you can maximize the debt as, as much as you can based on that. Um, but typically with these deals, if you're creating an affordable deal, you're looking at a, a blanket debt that's about 70% of the total development costs. And then your share price and your soft money uh, covers the rest of that 30 to 40%, depending on uh, the deal specifics. So you really, from what you just said, I get that the blanket mortgage could cover 70 to 98% of the total development costs, depending on who's right. doing that. Okay. That's, and so that's, that, that's correct. 2% that's left, if, if you've got that FHA uh, 213, you'd only need to raise that 2% over and above the loan amount. Or if it's not FHA 213, you've got to raise maybe 30 to 40% of some money somewhere either either that money would come from the the membership there they have a membership fee the hundred people in this example have to put up something that could be as low as i don't know five hundred dollars to fifty thousand dollars or and so they have to come up with something to help with that financing to bridge that gap and if it's five hundred or a thousand dollars then they, you have to look for that fundraising that Futura is doing. Some way That's you have good. to come up with that. That's okay. correct. And then the Forterra example, their, their uh, mortgage is actually about 70%. And the reason that is, is we, we want to charge, we wanted this to be, you know, uh, affordable to many of the residents. And it's, it's not mandated by any, government entity, the affordability. It's, it was mandated by Forterra and the local group that we're working with. So the rents or the rents, which and with a cooperative you call carrying charge are artificially kept low. And because they're low, the mortgage that you could qualify for uh, was not up to 98% because there's also a, a income test as far as sizing a mortgage. Uh, with a cooperative, you're allowed to use 100% of uh, your net operating income to uh, to size a mortgage based on whatever the interest rate is. So when you look at their net operating income, they could only qualify for a 70% mortgage as far as uh, loan to cost is concerned. So we're filling that 30% gap with share sales and soft money. And do you have a sense of how much the share sale will be of at thirty percent? Well, yes, um, I, I and I don't have those numbers directly in front of me, um, but share sales are going to be in the neighborhood of uh, fifty thousand dollars to sixty-five thousand dollars, depending on the size of the unit. There'll be one bedrooms, two bedrooms, and three bedrooms in this project. And the affordable units will pay that same price, but their uh, share price will be subsidized through some soft money sources. So the affordable units will, will probably carry real money out of the member's pocket of about five or $10,000. So what I have found out is if you've got somebody making $40,000, the likelihood of them having, say, $50,000 is almost zero. It's so zero. small. Yeah. yeah. And if, if they're making $40,000, a lot of times the projects that I manage may have a membership fee that's equal to the same as a security deposit. If the rent or co-op fee was $500, 
then that membership fee was $500. So somewhere you have to get that gap of the difference between $500 and $50,000 has to come from soft money somewhere. In the district, that may come from HPAP, which I talked about earlier, that the district puts up that money in terms of a grant, if it's uh, depending on their income, grant, or a low, low interest. You only pay back when the person sells the unit or if depending on their income, they could pay something back uh, monthly. But that's why it's set so somebody can get into housing. We got to take our final break, man. This is interesting. It's fun, and I really wanted to come back and talk more about the values and principles and why co-ops and who are the people that are wanting to buy this. Because I said I learned earlier that you have to have the demand, and you said that there's a significant interest. So that demand is there now. I want to come back and talk about that. We'll be right back, everybody. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. Um, we we talked about, and we've, we've been talking to Hugh Jeffers this morning about a housing cooperative. Right now, I want to go more into the example we're talking about, Futur in Seattle, Washington, and the different layers. We talked about the layers of financing, and I like Hugh's example. It's like a baking a cake. You have many different layers of baking a cake. And in housing co-ops, I found that you need five to seven layers, depending on the affordability and the gap that you need to put forth of what people can pay in terms of their membership fee and what you can get in terms of a, a mortgage, normally called a blanket mortgage. So we've been talking about that. And Hugh, I said I want to get into this segment, our last segment of this show. we got to have you back on again because this is so exciting to me, hopefully to other people out there. So. The, the idea behind this show is to give you information because information is power. Only if you put into action that if you need some housing, affordable housing, you may want to get together with your mosque, your church, or some other entity to create a, a affordable cooperative. And as Anita Bonds has said, I said earlier in the show, that co-ops is the answer, her words, to gentrification. So if you if you're in a community, if you're in Southwest D.C., Harlem, Seattle, Chicago, it, New Orleans, anywhere you want it, housing and you want to have ownership, then limited equity co-ops is a way of doing it. So you have to get the funding from somewhere, and you could call Hugh. Hugh, how can they get a hold of you? Well, they they can reach me uh, via email. My uh, email is uh, hjeffers at centennialmortgage.com. People could give me a call, too. My phone number, I'm happy to give that out as uh, and uh, I'm I'm available to to help. And like I said before, I wear two hats in the cooperative world. Uh, I can bring uh, resources of uh, the National Association of Housing Cooperatives to them through uh, the Development and Preservation Committee, and I can eventually uh, provide funding to to new co-ops. So So I got H. J E F F E R S at Centennial C E N T E N N I A L dot com. No, Centennial Mortgage dot com. Okay, so H Jeffers at Centennial Mortgage dot 
C-O-M. Or you can reach out to Hugh if you're in, in a community and you want to start a, a limited equity co-op. He's a good place to start. He can help find a nonprofit developer, a developer to help you do this. In the district right now, a big name is Mikasa. Uh, Mana was doing a lot of mortgages, but they couldn't get financing, so they started doing uh, condos. And uh, mm-hmm. with the financing, with this new interest, and maybe they'll go back to doing limited equity co-ops. But it's 202-415-1862. 202-415-1862. What were you going to say, Hugh? Well, it's funny because when I uh, was within uh, the National Cooperative Bank, NCB Development Corporation, which is now Capital Impact, uh, Mikasa and Mana were both uh, customers of ours. So it's, uh, you know, there's still, uh, it's good to hear that they're still pushing forward with uh, with uh, cooperative projects. Well, Mana has gotten bigger. Uh, they were also on this uh, limited equity housing co-op with me uh, as a developer, and they, they know a lot. They've worked a lot for all of the things that you've just talked about, and I would love to see Mana get back in the co-op world. But I'm also on a nonprofit board called Hope Housing, and we may be reaching out to you because we're looking at a project in Baltimore. Uh, that we're looking at three whole blocks in Baltimore, very blighted, uh, right around where th- this, uh, what do you want to call it, that neighborhood. So we want to help develop that neighborhood, and we're working with a nonprofit there that's a local nonprofit, uh, which is always who, what entity in the, in, in the community can you work with that gets the community values, like the Somalian values, what's the Somalian values, coming together as a part of Somalia. So, yeah. So we may be reaching out to you also to, to put these layers together of this financing for that project. Yeah. Well, it's amazing to me, I mean, uh, really over the past year, how, how many projects really just start with a phone call and an idea, look, we want to, you know, uh, we want to help bring the community together. We want to uh, help folks that can't afford housing become homeowners. And, you know, how do we do that? And, you know, suddenly you have an idea that uh, we can bring resources to that help make it a real project. And uh, that that's how these things start. Someone calls me with an idea. And that's how it started with Forterra uh, and the Wadajir project. I have a group I'm working with in North Carolina that uh, wants to develop a cooperative that's called Common Ground Cooperative. They want to have uh, a farming element to it. So, I mean, every every co-op is different, but it starts as an idea, and then you reach out to the people that uh, know a little bit about how put, how to put it together, and uh, that's how it works. It's amazing. Uh, it. Uh, and like I said, uh, almost all the projects I've worked with have started that way. They uh, grow, you know, sort of uh, from a single phone call. So you get this phone call from the idea, from the phone call, to you have uh, um, that's hundred units. How long does that normally take? It could. Uh, it depends, uh, really. Um, some groups are, are, are better prepared than others. Uh, I'm working with another group in. Uh, Seattle that's more prepared. They have like construction drawings done and all that. Uh, so they're, you know, that turnaround time um, might be 12 months uh, with a, with someone calling me with just an idea of putting it together. Uh, that development time frame can be two to four years. So it, it really depends on where people are when uh, they start the, the process. So my experience says it could be five years 
depending on what the project is, how much the money is, how how knowledgeable the, the people are that's trying to put it together, how much training they must have. That's the fifth principle of cooperative is training information. And it's all about how, how you get them trained up to how they work together as a community, how they solve problems together. Uh, there's always going to be conflict. Uh, this, I have one idea, and Hugh Jeffers has another idea, and how do we solve that together uh, without coups and all of this messy stuff, which is one of the other reasons I like co-ops, because that's the training that happens. Okay, so it's one year to five five years or so if, if you yeah, get started. No, it, it may take some time. Yeah, it, it, that's a valid time frame. Uh, and, again, it depends on the, where you are in the process when you make that call to, to organize this. So. I read a, 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 a research project that uh, looked at HUD-funded co-ops versus HUD-funded apartment buildings. If you haven't seen I've been trying to find it. I had it. But every variable you could think of, the co-ops outperformed the apartment buildings. Physical plants were better over long-term, 40 years. It had history now, 40, 50 years. The physical plant was better because the members owned it, and they made better decisions than the investors did And in the, the physical plant. The quality of life was much, much, much better. They got financial wealth. They got social wealth. They got political wealth. The foreclosures were much less, almost zero. The HUD funding, uh, Herb Fisher told me about this. But HUD has some kind of uh, insurance program for these projects. They had gained money, gained interest. Nobody almost used that money because there were these foreclosures. Rents were much lower in in Atlanta, a two-bedroom was running 500. I went and visited this co-op in Atlanta. Down the street, the apartment buildings were 700. This was after 30 years. So the opportunity cost was not even included in their savings or investment financial wealth, but they had to, they paid $200 less a month. That could go to child uh, uh, college or all kinds of different ways of in creating wealth. Rents were lower and, of course, increased savings which also did not include you get to write off of the property taxes and insurances. So co-ops outperformed in every way possible for the people, for the members, for the people that work there. If you're in an apartment building, you have no say, and you're subject to the investor, and he's only interested in most investors are interested in return on investment, and that's it. That's what I learned in my MBA program. What's the highest return <laughs> on investment? That's the decision you that's make. That's right. That's right. Well, I, you know, the cooperative model by definition is uh, more affordable than any, any multifamily rental. You know, it removes that profit motive to the operations of the, of the property. Um, so as a, as a member of a cooperative, you're only paying for whatever debt you have on the property plus whatever the operating expenses are of that property. You know, the real estate taxes, the, uh, the utilities, uh, garbage collection, things along those lines are all paid for collectively. And when they're paid for collectively, uh, they're usually cheaper than what you would have to do if you were a single-family homeowner. So the model is really about creating the most affordable home ownership that's out there. And to, to go, go back to your uh, statistics you were quoting about the HUD-insured programs, and that's primarily the 213 program when it comes to cooperatives, uh, although there were some affordable cooperatives uh, created under a couple programs that don't exist anymore, the 236 program and the 221D3 Beamer program. It used to be, they don't do this anymore, but it used to be uh, because 
there were no losses in the cooperative mortgage insurance fund under 213 that the members of or the 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 borrowers from that uh, program actually received the refund of their mortgage insurance every year. That's never happened in any other program because there's always losses. Um, so yes, the the model is significantly better when compared to other multifamily uh, models. Um, uh, as far as maintaining plant, uh, as, as far as viability and long-term affordability. So here, I just uh, we only have a couple minutes left, but I did not like limited equity co-op because in the district, being an African American, I thought this was white folks' way of making sure that blacks did not get any equity. It's called limited equity. But mm-hmm. have, over time, when you look at the choices that somebody makes that's 40% of the median family income or 80% of median, they don't have the opportunity to buy this single house with the white picket fence and dog and two children. You don't. That model is not available for most African-Americans, Hispanics, and Native Americans. It's just not available. So when I look at the options are uh, apartment building or limited equity co-op, the limited equity co-op outperformed the apartment building and everything we just talked about. Okay, right. everything. And the social part of it is, and I've been in meetings as a manager where the people would say, well, I know who's who's selling the drugs down the street, and then they call the police on them. So you have less crime in a limited equity co-op than you would in an apartment building because people take ownership and control, and they know how to work with police or they know how to work with government entities or other entities that get help. So it outperforms them every way. I love them now. And it's a way of building wealth. Okay, you still build wealth from all of the reasons we just talked about. And therefore, you can, and I've seen people do this, go buy that house after they've lived there for a while. So it's wonderful. Sure. So what's the, in the last minute, what message would you like to leave people with? Well, the message is, is that, you know, cooperative housing, limited equity cooperative housing, is a, is a way to, to build a community, to uplift people, to, to create wealth, and to, to create stronger communities. And I'm working with groups all over the country that want to do that. I'm, I'm working with a group of, of black doctors and health professionals. It started out as a Facebook group. Uh, sorry. i talk more about that the next time. <laughs> we'll have you on the next time. Call Hugh Jeffers at 202-415-1862 if you're looking at an idea, have an idea, or you have the plans. Call him and he can help you. Hugh, thank you very much. We'll have you on again. Uh, as soon Thank as you, possible, because you have other examples I'd like to talk about. Everybody out there, please live. The, we'll see you next Thursday. Please live cooperatively and have a wonderful week. 